If you have your Bible with you, I'd encourage you to turn in them to Luke chapter 21. Luke chapter 21, verses 5 through 19. Luke chapter 21, verses 5 through 19. As you know, Jesus is in his Passion Week, and he's been in the temple courts instructing, teaching, and interacting with the religious leaders of his day, and now he addresses the disciples. And this passage is traditionally referred to as the Olivet Discourse, and it, it extends all the way to verse 38, but that's a bit uh, more than what we're able to cover today. So we'll finish up Jesus' discussion here next week. So today we'll just be considering uh, verses 5 through 19. So again, Luke chapter 21, verses 5 through 19. Please pay careful attention, for this is God's holy and inspired word to you this morning. And while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, Jesus said, As for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And they asked him, Teacher, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And he said, see that you are not led astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified, for these things must first take place, and the end will, be at, and the end will not be at once. But the end will not be at once. Then he said to them, nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes, and in various places, famines and pestilences. And there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons. And you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it, therefore, in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom, which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be delivered up, even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. But... Not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. Well, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. May he write this word upon our hearts this morning. Well, what if next week World War III broke out? What if next week... America ceased to be a, a world power and nation as we know it. What if next week there was a plague that swept across this world and took out 20% of our population? What if there's a famine and bread lines were instituted? Would you interpret these things as signs of the end? Well, the disciples in this passage are in a, a similar situation asking a very similar question. As you know, Jesus has been teaching in the temple courts by day and lodging at the mount that is called Olivet by night, and his disciples have been accompanying him. And so on one of their journeys to and fro uh, from the Mount of Olives to the temple courts, 
the disciples commented to Jesus on the grandeur, the beauty of this temple. Now, as a reminder, this is Israel's second temple. The first temple of Israel was destroyed in 586 B.C. by Nebuchadnezzar. And then in about 519 B.C., this second temple was constructed. And the second temple wasn't nearly as magnificent as that first Solomonic temple. Then in about 19 B.C., Herod the Great began these great renovations of the second temple that lasted for about 80 years. They weren't completed until around 63 or 64 AD. So at the time of this narrative, these renovations are still taking place. Nevertheless, it was a magnificent piece of architecture. So much so that we have testimony from ancient historians. Uh, Josephus, the Jewish historian Josephus, said that this temple had these gold plates, and when the sun shone on the, on the, uh, the right, shone upon these uh, gold plates, it looked like snow-clad mountains. The Roman historian Tacitus said that it was as universally known that this temple was immensely opulent. Jesus then, in response, says something that would have uh, would have made the disciples. Uh, Stop and think. Notice what Jesus says. He says, the days are coming when one, not, not one stone will be left on top of another. This great piece of architecture is about to come tumbling down. Boys and girls, I don't know if you've ever played the game Jenga, where you have these, these bricks that you stack up, and then the point of the game is you have to push out these bricks without the, the whole tower tumbling down. Well, Jesus is saying that this temple is going to come, come crumbling down like when you push one too many bricks out of the game Jenga. Well, the disciples, after hearing this outrageous claim, say, Jesus, well, well, when are these things going to take place? What will be a sign that this significant event is around the corner? Notice the disciples say these things. In their minds, they can't conceive of history going on if this temple is destroyed. Remember, they thought that this Messiah was coming to bring an earthly kingdom, to renew earthly temple worship. And so if Jesus is saying that this second temple is going to be destroyed by the Romans, well, then, of course, that's the end of history. That's final judgment. That's when Christ is going to institute the new heavens and the new earth. So they're conflating these two events of the destruction of the temple and the end of history. That's why they say, Jesus, when will these things take place? What's a sign? We love signs, don't we? We naturally look for signs because signs give us comfort. We trust in signs. We depend upon signs. If you are going outside for the day and you look up in the sky, it's cloudy and gloomy, then you're going to prepare for rain for the afternoon. But if there's not a cloud in the sky and it's warm and sunny, then you're going to bring your sunscreen. We naturally look for signs as we live our life. And so to the disciples, they want a sign. When will we know that this event is about to happen. Now, Jesus, as he responds in this extended passage, he separates these two events. He says that this local event of the destruction of the Jerusalem temple, which did indeed happen in AD 70, that's, that's one event. And that's to be distinguished from his second coming, which will conclude history 
as we know it on this present earth. And so he's distinguishing between these two events. They are not events that happen at the same time. And next week we'll get into some of the reasons why that is the case. But in this passage, Jesus is first addressing the end, the end of all things, the end of history, his second coming, because that's one of the things that the disciples had in mind. So Jesus here is first addressing in verses 5 through 19, specifically the end of history, his second coming. And he begins in answering their question by giving them non-signs, right? The disciples are asking for signs. So he gives them non-signs. That is to say, things that they should not trust in, things that they should not depend upon as valid indicators that he's about to come. So he's giving the disciples two non-signs. And I'd like us to consider then these two non-signs because these two non-signs are just as applicable to us today as they were for the disciples in the first century. Well, the first non-sign that we, we hear from the lips of Jesus is the predictions of false teachers. So look with me in your Bibles at verse 8. Jesus says, see that you are not led astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. Now, Jesus' reference to the time is a reference when the clock of this present creation will run out. It's the end of history. And Jesus is saying that if, if, if people come and claim to know the day and the hour, don't listen to them. It's a non-sign. It's not a valid indicator of when I'm actually going to come. You all probably know uh, Franklin's quote that the only certain things in life are death and taxes. Well, we could probably add to that and say, and people predicting the end of history. <laughs> we don't have enough time to go through the various groups and movements and individuals who claimed to know when Christ would return or when history as we know it would end. It's true of every age. And Jesus is saying, don't listen. Don't listen. It's a non-sign. In fact, uh, this week, I came across a website which claims to be the Dow Jones Industrial Average of End Times Activity, or the Prophetic Speedometer. So what it gives you is all these categories, which this site believes to be indicators of, of the last day, such as satanic activity, um, um, inflation, um, all, you know, moral decay in society and culture. And then each day it spits out a number, and this number falls along a spectrum. The low end of the spectrum means there's low probability of, of Christ coming. The other end of the spectrum is a high probability of Christ coming. And so you can each day look at that day's average and the probability of whether history is going to end today or not. And Jesus is saying, don't listen to websites like that. They're a non-sign. It's a false predictor. And specifically, notice the imperative that Jesus gives us here. He says, don't be led astray. Don't be led astray. This begs the question, led astray from what? What is the church's mission and focus to be in this age? 
led astray from what? Well, Matthew's version of this passage includes a note that I think is very helpful. In Matthew's version, Jesus says this. He says, And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Jesus there makes explicit what we are to be focused upon as the church of Jesus Christ. Proclaiming and preaching the gospel to all nations. And whenever the church gets wrapped up in trying to predict the day and hour of the return of Christ, they are necessarily becoming distracted from their true mission, which is to proclaim the gospel to all nations so that the fullness of the elect can be brought in. And thus, we as a church, we're called to support this ministry of the gospel. We're called to put ourselves under this ministry of the gospel, which is our means of grace and sustenance in our earthly pilgrimage. So Jesus is saying the first non-sign are predictions from false teachers. Don't be led astray. Remember what your mission is. Your mission is to proclaim the gospel as a spiritual institution. Well, the second non-sign that Jesus gives us is don't be surprised by suffering. So Jesus is saying, if you look out into your world and you see things that uh, see uh, society, culture, creation itself going from bad to worse, don't think that's a sign that Jesus is about to come back. Don't be surprised. So if you look with me uh, at verse 9, Jesus says, and when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified, for these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. Jesus is saying that if you hear of wars breaking out, or even the rumor of wars, don't be surprised. It's not a sign. Jesus says that if, if you hear of tumults, and now this word refers to rebellion or disorder. Paul uses it in 1 Corinthians 14, 33, to refer to divisions and disorder within the church. So Jesus is saying if there is future division within the kingdom of God, which started almost as, as, as soon as the, the new covenant church began, don't interpret that as a sign of the end. This word is also used to refer to civil disorder and, and unrest. It's used this way in a number of, of, of extra biblical books. So Jesus is saying that if you look out into society and there's civil rebellion, disorder, unrest, don't be surprised. It's a non-sign. Verses 10 through 11, Jesus continues. He says, nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There'll be great earthquakes and in various places, famines and pestilences. He says, if you witness world wars, kingdom against kingdom, nation against nation, don't be surprised. It's not a sign. If you witness great and horrific natural disasters, don't be surprised. It's not a sign. <laughs> he says that if you witness famines and plagues, don't be surprised. It's not a sign. And then at the end of verse 11, he says, and there will be tears and great signs from heaven. That's Jesus then transitioning to refer to Christ's second coming, when it will be explicitly clear when he's descending from the heavens. There will be signs from heaven. So that is a reference to the second coming of Christ. That which precedes it is characteristic of, age, of, of this age in a fallen world. 
When you think about the history of this world, these are things that have characterized every century since the dawn of time. Wars, rumors of wars, famine, pestilence, natural disasters, these things are characteristic of life in a fallen world. Think of what we are currently going through, recently have gone through. There's a war in Ukraine. We've recently gone through COVID. We've seen division, a lot of division within the church. We've seen a lot of unrest and rebellion in our society. And Jesus is saying, you shouldn't be surprised. I said that this is what you should be expecting in the first century. Life between my two advents are going to be characterized by these things. Jesus says in Matthew 24, these are the birth pains of creation. Or Paul, this is creation groaning, groaning for that day of redemption when our bodies will be redeemed. Sometimes I think we as moderns, we, we think that we have somehow graduated from experiencing these things or, or a certain level of these things. And if a certain level of these things did enter our space and time, it would just be unthinkable and the, and the, and the end must be, must be around the corner. But Jesus is saying, no, these are the types of things that you should expect in a fallen world. But what's Jesus' imperative? He says, don't be terrified. He knows that our natural reaction is to be terrified when we hear of wars. To be terrified when there's famines and plagues and natural disasters, that, that's, that's a normal response that we are to have. And so this again begs the question, if we are not to be terrified, then what are we to take confidence and courage in? If, someone, if you're sharing your heart with someone about an anxiety that you have, and they say, oh, 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 don't be scared. But they give you no reminder of what you should take confidence or courage in. It's not very helpful. And so what is Jesus then telling us to take confidence in? Well, implicitly, Jesus, as the one who's able to predict these things, is showing himself to be the one who sustains all things by the word of his power, as Hebrews 1 tells us. But in verse 32, which we'll consider at, at greater length next week, but in verse 32, Jesus says something which has, has caused lots of, of ink to be spilt. But he says, truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. All has taken place. This has led some people to think that Christ did return in AD 70 and that we are living the new creation with resurrected bodies and that revelation has already happened. But this generation doesn't only refer to how we ordinarily think of generation, meaning people living in a certain, um, a certain age. This can refer to a certain kind or class of people. And so what Jesus is saying here is that this unbelieving world will not pass away until all these things have taken place. Meaning, implicitly, that God is going to exercise forbearance among this, uh, towards this unbelieving world and delay final judgment until the second coming. And that then connects us directly to God's covenant with Noah. So when we hear what Jesus says here, it can make us very pessimistic. And we should. We should have proper expectations for life in this fallen world. We have not been promised a, a utopia here on earth. We've not promised a, a future golden age in the church. But we can take confidence and courage in that covenant that God made with Noah. Boys and girls, you remember that, that, that 
Very um, well-known story. God judged the world by a flood, and then he reestablished the world after the flood and gave mankind a number of responsibilities. I mentioned this a few weeks ago. And what he did in this covenant is he promised to preserve, not redeem, but preserve creation. He promises that there will be, until the second coming of Christ, seed time and harvest, day and night, summer and winter, night and day, while the earth remains. He promises to preserve creation. And in this covenant, he reestablishes a number of very, very foundational institutions. He reestablishes the institution of the natural family. He calls mankind to be fruitful and multiply within the context of that natural family. He also calls mankind, he says mankind is given plants and animals to eat. And as I said before, plants and animals in the ancient world did not magically appear in one's dinner plate. It took a lot of effort to get plants and animals on your dinner plate. And so this is an implicit call to work. Enterprise institutions, institutions that are formed to meet the growing needs of a society. And then God also instituted this principle of proportionate justice so that mankind doesn't delve into complete anarchy. Whoever sheds man's blood by man, his blood shall be shed. These are judicial institutions. And so another way to say that God is preserving creation is that God is preserving these foundational institutions. And you look at the history of the world, these institutions have been preserved. Mankind has propagated itself. There's been enough semblance of the natural family so that we can continue on. There's been enough preservation of enterprise institutions that our needs are met. Enough semblance of justice so that we don't completely snuff ourselves out as a society. And so we can take courage, we can take confidence in the fact that even though life will be hard, we will not cease to exist. Things won't go completely off the rails and we exterminate ourselves. God is faithful to the covenants that he makes with mankind and therefore he will preserve creation. And therefore, we, we in one sense are called to have a pessimistic optimism, optimistic pessimism. Yes, we are have real um, and, and honest expectations according to what Jesus says here, but we can take confidence that God will preserve this creation. Just as we know he will preserve the church, we know that he will preserve creation because he's made a covenant with creation. Well, Jesus doesn't here just speak about the birth pains of creation. He also gets a, a lot more personal. And again, he's speaking here to the disciples. He says that this persecution, that this suffering isn't just going to be out there. It's going to come very close to home. He says, you yourselves are going to be persecuted for my name's sake. So if you look with me at um, uh, verses 12 through 19, Jesus here speaks to the disciples and, and very accurately describes what their life is going to be like in the Acts of the Apostles. So if you look at verse 12, he says, Before all this, meaning the second coming, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. That happens. We just read Luke's second book, and we see the apostles being delivered up to both religious authorities and civil authorities. Jesus continues in verses 13 and 15 and says, but this will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it therefore in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom, which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. 
This also came to fulfillment. These, many of these disciples who in the Gospels are presented as blumbering fools, <laughs> after Pentecost, are giving these eloquent, persuasive, and powerful orations to Christ, or about Christ. <laughs> How did that happen? Well, the Spirit gave them a mouth and wisdom to speak. Now, it's interesting that in 1 Peter 3, Peter, who was one of the disciples who experienced this transformation, experienced the Spirit giving him words to speak. Peter, in 1 Peter 3, says that when we, ordinary Christians, are, are suffering for the sake of Christ and are given an opportunity to give a defense of the hope that lies within us, he says that we are called to prepare a defense. Again, we can't always do a one-to-one -one correlation between something that the apostles did and something that we are called to do. That promise was specifically for the disciples, that they, as apostles, as those who are members of the foundation of this new creation temple, they will have a mouth and a wisdom, but we, as living bricks in the walls of this new creation temple, we are called to prepare a defense. And yes, even that prepared defense is from the Spirit, but we are called to prepare a defense, as Peter is speaking to ordinary Christians in 1 Peter 3. Well, then, verses 16 through 17, uh, Jesus says, And you will be delivered up, even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. Jesus says that these disciples will be uh, betrayed at times by those who are closest to them, and some of them will perish, die for the sake of Christ. By implication, this is telling us that the church will continue to experience persecution uh, between these two advents of Christ. And we know, obviously, in the West, we have tasted nothing of this type of persecution, which uh, is described here, but there are many brothers and sisters even right now who are being persecuted. And many Christians throughout the history of the church have been persecuted. In the life of the disciples, we know that James was killed by Herod the Great. We know Stephen was stoned. We know uh, we, uh, Paul may have been beheaded. We don't know for sure. Peter may have been crucified upside down. Again, we don't know for sure. But many of these disciples did lose their lives in a way that very much mirrored the life of Christ. <laughs> so Jesus is telling these disciples, you're going to be persecuted. Some of you will perish. And again, remember the imperative in this section. Don't be terrified. Of course, when we're about to lose our lives in a horrific way, terror naturally springs into our heart. And so the question that comes to mind is, well, why not Jesus? How can you tell us to not be terrified when we may lose our lives. When it comes to persecution, what courage, what confidence do we have? Well, Jesus tells us explicitly in verses 18 through 19. He says, but not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. Now, this, this statement that Jesus makes, not a hair of your head will perish, this is a proverbial statement. It's used four or five times in the Old Testament. It's used in the book of Acts. It's used a number of times by Jesus himself. And this proverb is employing a lesser to the greater argument. Think of the strands of your hair. These are some of the most insignificant 
parts of your body. Now, some of us may wish we had more of it, but it is insignificant. If you were given the option, a piece of hair or your leg, a piece of hair or your hand, which would you choose? <laughs> Pretty obvious, isn't it? In fact, we lose many strands of hair, countless, throughout the day, and we don't think a thought about it. And so, if God promises to preserve even the hairs of our head, will he not preserve the greater members of our body and even our soul? Lesser to the greater. Furthermore, it's a statement of God's sovereign control. If God is sovereign over how many hairs you have and which hairs fall out and which hairs stay in, if he's sovereign over something as insignificant as that, is he not sovereign over the greater details of your life and of this world? Lesser to the greater. But how can Jesus say this? He just got done saying that some of you disciples will die, and all of them did die eventually, and their hair literally did decompose. So how can he say you're going to die, but not a hair of your head will perish? Is he speaking on both sides of his mouth? Well, in Luke chapter 12, Jesus employs a very similar use of this, this, this proverb. And in Luke chapter 12, verses 4 through 7, Jesus tells his disciples, he says, Don't fear those who only have authority to kill your body. Rather, he says, fear the one who can kill the body and then has the authority to cast your body and soul into hell. Then immediately he turns and says, are not five sparrows sold for two, uh, two pennies? And not one of them falls to this earth apart from the will of my father. Indeed, even the hairs of your head are numbered, so fear not. So Jesus here is saying that we are to fear God more than we fear man. Or to put it another way, we are to trust, trust God more than we trust and look to man. So Jesus here is not speaking to our physical lives. God never promised us an easy life. He never promised us a long life. He's never promised us earthly and temporal blessings. But rather what he's promised us is that not a hair on your everlasting, glorified body will perish. God's promising here that we have an inheritance in heaven that's undefiled, unfading, and that's being preserved for us. Death is merely an entrance into life eternal. Remember Paul's words in Romans chapter 8 that nothing, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. When it comes to our everlasting existence in that new creation, not a hair of your head will perish. Not a hair of your resurrected head will perish. You are safe eternally. In Paul in Romans 8, he, he, he lists all of these things, famine, danger, nakedness, uh, sword, heights, depths, things present, things to come, angels, rulers, nothing, nothing. And he even quotes uh, from the Psalms and, and says that, uh, a Psalm of David, where David says, we're being killed all the day long. We are suffering, but yet, even in the midst of suffering, we can say nothing shall separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So that's the promise that we have. And boys and girls, you are, um, many of you are, are hopefully working on 
memorizing question answer one of the Heidelberg Catechism, and you know that in the first question answer, there's a phrase that sounds very similar to the phrase that Jesus employs here in Luke chapter 21. That Christ watches over us in such a way that not a hair can fall from our head apart from the will of our Father in heaven. That's a promise, the promise that we can claim. So congregation of Christ, if you are here this, this morning and you are feeling uh, the birth pains of this creation, suffering, whether it be, they be from persecution or just the common sufferings of this fallen present age, be confident. Be confident that God is preserving and will continue to preserve this creation by virtue of that ancient covenant that he made with Noah. And be confident that this God is your God, your almighty God, and your faithful Father who promises that whatever evil he sends upon you in this veil of tears, he is both able and willing to turn it for your good, which means he's able to turn it into your everlasting salvation in Christ. So rest in that. Rest in that as we go out into another week. Let's pray.